welcome to Heavy Strategy, the show about unanswered questions, not unquestioned answers. And speaking of not unquestioned answers, there's this idea that out there that there's the right technology, you know, whatever's in the Gartner Magic Quadrant, you need to go buy that so you can be effective as an organization. And if you're not buying something in the in the Gartner Magic Quadrant, you're not doing it right. And Greg and I have been talking about this, and we realized that there's kind of a spectrum on this notion of technology being fit for the purpose of the business. Greg, you had the observation that you know there's a very different mindset in technology if you have this idea of endure, building an enduring business. If your goal is to start a company and create generational wealth, you're going to plow an awful lot into the technology that supports that. Did you want to talk a little bit about that, share some of those thoughts with our listeners? Yeah, I think it's been pretty well covered in the press is that uh, something like 80% of all companies in the in the American press anyway, on the top 500 companies, have only existed for 10 years or less. There's no concept of 100-year companies anymore or 200-year companies that used to happen. What happens now is that they grow, they put on business units, and then the market turns against them or they have run into an era of mismanagement. The company is sliced up, sold off, and then merged into another entity. And even more so, due to the rate of change in both societally and at a technology level, we see companies just disappearing. Hoover washing machines, Kodak companies who just didn't make the transition to the next technology and the names that the companies behind them die off and, and don't sustain. And so what we're seeing as the point is, which I think it came from the question is, there's no point in building technology that lasts because the company probably isn't going to last longer than 20 years in its current form anyway. What we need to be doing is building infrastructure that's good enough that just lasts long enough for the money spent, you know, the pricing comes into the factor so that it can be replaced before the company goes out of business. And that's a that's a difference that we call what we were calling evanescent versus enduring. And you kind of think of it as almost the VM, uh, the VMification of companies, because instead of being servers that are like solid and, and meant to be there, mm-hmm. they just sort of appear, disappear and they're evanescent. But the observation that you hit on that I thought was really interesting was there's an entire canal system in the UK, which I didn't really know because <laughs> I'm not in the UK, and the canals were actually built to support various industries. Yep. And the idea was it was cost effective to build these canals because your your company was going to be there for 200, 300 years, and so you just needed a way to get the supplies into the industry and then get the you know get the products out and you said there were even different companies that built different networks of canals that's this is a bit of a history lesson but the canals came mm-hmm. around before trains were invented at the beginning of the industrial era you'd have the mines somewhere you would have the factories down on the coast ready to produce the goods and then put them on a ship and then move them down to London, which was to the market or to move them to offshore. Because this was an era of coastal lighters and the idea of moving goods across land was basically a horse and cart, not very effective. And so the only ways that you could do mass mass transport or bulk carrying was to either put it on a ship or dig a canal and put it on a ship. The UK at the time was going through an intense period of, of industrialization and growth and they started to dig out these canals and they would have mines or near the farms they could load them with wheat or you know whatever cotton whatever it was that was being produced and then move it from point a to point b and implicit in the assumption that when you dig a canal and it takes five to ten years to do it and then put boats on it that float up and down it is that it's a long-term thing they need to be long-term investment yeah Within certain limits here, there's a lot more detail in the history. But yes, they were building with the expectation that they would last forever. They didn't, of course, because trains came along 
um, steam-powered trains, which changed not only the boats, of course, that were on the canals, uh, but also enabled train lines to carry goods in a much more direct fashion. So instead of carrying them to the coast, transshipping them onto a vessel, which would then follow the coastline around, because 80% of all shipping is actually coastal shipping. It just is a way to move mass volume of goods from point A to point B. I was a bit surprised when I learned how high it was. You sort of think everything that is on a ship is international bulk ships with towers of containers sitting on top of a container vessel. But that's actually the very, very small fraction of the total shipping. Even today, coastal shipping still remains the bulk, you know, very significant. I I mean, I didn't know that fact, but it doesn't surprise me because you think Mm. about trucking the same way. If you Mm. envision a truck, you're going to think of an 18-wheeler. Everybody does. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a truck. But actually, if you look on the roads, it's like, well, there's there's this whole class between a slightly large van and an 18-wheeler, which is most of the trucks on the road. Yeah, 12-ton, 20-ton, 40-ton. Uh, is sort of the standard, standard category. I'm talking metric tons, whatever it is in uh, freedom in, tons, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> freedom tons. <laughs> no, no, those are freedom fries. <laughs> you know, but now 250 years later, the canals are still operating. They didn't need a lot of maintenance to be restarted back in the middle of the 19th of the 20th century. So around the 1950s and 1960s, the canals had largely been ignored and run down and so forth. And some of them were still being used for freight. And even today, there are still some just a few, like a handful of companies carrying freight down the canals for a few companies. But I think the last of them is just about faded out. But they didn't need a lot of work. So this idea of building something that lasted for a long time was a part of that and Victorian had, era. And low operational overhead, mm. as we would say today. Mm. Yeah, And, I, and they and, did the same I thing with they... the trains, by the way, and the yeah. bridges. So when you come to the UK and you look at bridges, I can't speak to Europe, so I, I won't. You know, We still have bridges that were built in the 1800s in Europe, in Europe they do, except for the ones that the Americans bombed. Cough, cough. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did a lot of bombing bridges. It was very effective. Yes, that's right. Well, that was the that was necessary. Yep. It was, it was the against the Nazis. Come on, we had yeah. a, we had a justification. So but, it is yeah. interesting to think about. You know, they were building for a different era. Those industrialists of that era were building generational wealth. The idea was is that they would build it. Capitalism had, was still a, a new idea, and the idea was to bring people off the land, stopping from being farm workers, to build technology that could then make farming more productive, but also bring people out of poverty, living on the breadline, and into into the cities where they could have better life. Um, and, the, and the observation here is that essentially once we were able to decouple wealth from land and have wealth associated with an industry, mm-hmm. but the, the paradigm stayed kind of the same. Like, you land is in the you know in your family for generations it doesn't really change the only thing that might change is what you do with it so the same idea was you would build a business that would sit there for generations that might you know grow and evolve with mm-hmm. the times but had the same sort of characteristics as land and yeah. what we're seeing is today's businesses aren't like that at all. aren't like that at all so the idea of building an IT infrastructure that lasts for 20 years which when i started in IT i saw the end of the mainframe microcomputer mini computer era. I was even involved in selling microcomputers for a couple of years. And these companies would go to the banks and take out 10-year loans to buy to these microcomputers. technology. And you'd yeah. be like, what? This is going to be obsolete in three. But you didn't know that. But fact. it wasn't One obsolete day. in three. These companies, I would go into companies who'd been using the same mini computer for 20 years. These are PIC mm-hmm. minis and you know various types of microcomputers. Even today, yeah. you can go into companies that are still using DECFAX, PDP-10s, PDP-11s. Hey, I was going to say, PDP-11s are the best machine made as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> but never mind. But they're still <laughs> used in some places, right? And they would yes, have been bought on 10-year loans, like traditional financing, like higher purchase type 
financing. And But today we don't do that. We expect an asset to have an ROI of three years. We expect it yeah, to be you ephemeral. You depreciate it over three, three to five years mm. tops. If you're depreciating anything over five years, you're nuts. Um, oh. And that's actually a hard conversation to have with your CFO because your CFO is probably, you know, uh, 10 to 20 years behind the times. <laughs> what does yeah, that mean to ahead. technology? So there's a whole bunch of issues there. What does that mean for technology? What does that mean for us as people? And and I'm going to take slight issue with this whole notion that there's an inevitable switch from one to the other. So we're moving you know, from mainframes to VMs, to use the example, that companies are now entirely ephemeral, never going to be enduring. It's, it's sort of like the percentages we've talked about. More companies will be on, will be more like evanescent and ephemeral, and fewer companies will be enduring, but there's a need for both. And that's kind of the reason I wanted to raise that, because mm-hmm. if you're one of those technologists who spent most of your career at one end or the other of the spectrum, let's say you've been working on tech startups from Silicon Valley, and the whole concept of a serial entrepreneur is the goal. You want to be able to start lots of companies. You want to have lots of companies. They appear, they disappear, they appear, they disappear. You know, and that's really the the model you're used to. Well, you know, that's all about move fast, break things. Don't worry about technical debt because your company will be gone before the debt accrues and you ever have to pay it. That's great Hmm. because you're going to learn an entire skill set that has to do with moving fast and breaking things and being agile and responsive to the business. If, on the other hand, you're working at one of the few companies that's actually lasted more than 100 years, you're going to have a very different idea of how to build something, how to make decisions about how to build something. And guess what? My main point is neither one is intrinsically wrong. There may be more of the former going forward and fewer of the latter. But if you ever end up having to work in an organization that requires scope and scale and historical longevity, you will need some of those skills that you can get only from some of these longer, more enduring organizations. Mm. So the idea is be aware of the difference kind of know in your own head where the organization that you're working on fits. Are they were they formed from the get-go to be sold or did the, you know, did the founder back in, you know, 1920 whatever have this idea of generational wealth and yeah. recognize that the systems you're building are going to be totally different depending on which one they are. There's a big difference between shareholders who only calculate returns in this quarter. Maybe they've got well, a one-year, a whole one-year horizon. Well, that's I won't say it's a whole different thing, but all companies are subject to that, and I would argue to their detriment, yes. but that's neither here nor there. The, We're not the, business folk. We're technologists. Yeah, the short we could argue about short-termism and, and complain and whine about it for hours, but the reality is that we it could. exists, and it doesn't really matter why it's here. It's just it's here. It's just, so, it's just here, and we've all got to live with it, yeah. It's also worth recognizing the change here is also when you look at heritage IT. So remember I talked about many computers and microcomputers. A lot of heritage IT was built on the idea that it would be one and done. You mm-hmm. buy a server, it would last five, maybe 10 years. Certainly when I started out in my career in networking, for example, data networking, it was not uncommon for campus networks to last for over t- 10 years. You would look literally look at a refresh in the campus network once every 10 to 15 years, maybe, sometimes 20. Right. I've been at universities where there was infrastructure layered on top of layer on top of layer and the well, core had been refreshed but the edge was 10 15 years well old. partly because if you think about the the split of evanescent versus enduring you mm. know universities definitely fall on the enduring side mm. nobody starts a university with the idea that it's going to be gone in 5 years subsumed into another university because that mm. works against all of the all of the things you need to make a university successful so yeah mm. i think higher education is probably a great example i would say maybe companies like insurance companies like healthcare, 
they're serving a core need that's that there's no expectation that the need is going to go away. Also, potentially, we were talking about mining and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're serving a core need that you can't imagine is going to go away because it applies to to humans, fundamentally to humans, the company's probably going to be more on the enduring side of the house, but mm. not necessarily because there's yeah. all this idea of digitally transforming state old industries. Yeah. I guess it also feeds into the idea of uh, part of off-prem cloud is this idea of disposable mm. IT. Yeah. So you yeah. can just say, exactly. oh, I'm going to buy it. I'll use it. And when I'm done, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to acquire it. I don't have to dispose of it. I don't have to own it. I don't have to take responsibility for it. That does tend to result in uh, speed. So we talk about right. speed to market, speed to development. But what we're also finding is it comes with another set of problems, which as companies have found when managing fleets of cars, you don't want to own a fleet of cars, but you end up having to employ a lot of people to manage the fleet of cars that you don't own. And so there's a bunch of hidden costs in off-prem cloud where when you don't own it, there's no discipline about consuming it. There's no control. You know, the idea of cost control or upfront planning is often missing. And so you end up with post-event cost control. I've got bad, I've got a cost control problem and now I have to work out how to fix it. It pushes you into a reactive mode. And I'll just remind everybody that mm. in our maturity model, it goes from unprepared to reactive to proactive to anticipatory. Reactive is actually very bad. You may, mm. you may pride yourself on being reactive, but it's a terrible way to operate yep. because you're, you know, as one of my colleagues memorably put it, you're always reacting to the invisible man with a bat. You're sitting there quietly doing your work and somebody comes and hits you on the head and you have no idea where that came from. Mm. or what was driving it because you're just reacting to the current state. Mm. And that's a terrible way to run IT. I would also argue, you're talking about the discipline you need to, to manage things. I would say there's another level of discipline that most organizations don't have, which is the Marie Kondo level of discipline. To, you know, does this IT system spark joy? Does this SaaS application spark joy? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. And even Marie Kondo has kind of, now that she's had kids, she's backed off from that. Yeah. But very few of us, either personally or organizationally, have built into our daily routines this idea of throw it out, get rid of it, get rid of it properly. Like how many people just throw their batteries in the trash, right? Yeah. It's like, yes, I'm using batteries. Yes, I know they don't belong in the trash, but I'm lazy and I will throw them out. Or the other thing people do is they have a giant box of batteries that they're going to take to the appropriate disposal station sometime. Yeah, Point hopefully being, just be careful they don't explode. That's one of the right. things, that, yeah. They, they do that. Especially um, when you've got and, the old and, lithium, like the first generation lithium ion. Yeah, um, yeah. The I later generation those. ones are a lot better put together, but yeah. Why are we talking about things that explode? We kicked off this morning by talking about <laughs> hydrogen engines. Anyway, yeah. um, point being that if you don't have the discipline in your organization that's, that, that thinks explicitly ahead of time about end of life and anything, like, okay, we're only going to buy this service for six months, and then it'll have done its thing, and we can turn it off, and here's the process for turning it off. If you don't think about it, you're going to end up in two or three years with all this stuff that nobody understands who's using it or for why and doesn't take the time to shut down, and it's costing you both hard dollars and soft dollars overhead. It's the IT equivalent of clutter. Kind of the threat to your evanescent, lean, agile organization is that you will pile up technical debt even in this tiny little organization, this this rapidly changing organization that will start to hobble you. And it's mm. like having having stuff all over your living room. You can't run across it. Yeah. Even if your living room is designed on the Scandinavian plan, if you take all your stuff out of the closets and throw it on the floor, it's going to trip you. What do you think this means for architecture teams? Let's say you and I are sitting I on the architecture team. We've identified that the market is moving from this enduring to this evanescent. I wouldn't say it matters so much whether the market is moving. I would say ask yourself, if there's a spectrum that says 
evanescent versus enduring. Where are you on the spectrum in your estimation? So as you're sitting there in the meeting waiting for it to start, ask yourself questions like when was this company founded? What What is the mission statement? Does the mission statement talk about generations? Does it talk about longevity? Or is it simply about changing the world, doing something in the, in the here and now? And also watch what's happened. It's a history and track record of the person in charge or people in charge. Have they come from organizations where the average tenure is 25 years? Or have they come from organizations that turn over every two years? So figure out where you are on the spectrum, because that's going to help you make a cultural fit with your strategic technology decisions. And then I would say the second thing is, even if you are in a move fast, break it, uh, don't worry about technical debt, evanescent kind of company, explicitly push people to think about things they don't want to think about, like operational costs and end of life for Hmm. any system you buy. Because if your goal is to stay lean, mean, and agile, I keep using my, my metaphor, that means picking the stuff up the floor, up off the floor and putting it back into the closet or end of lifeing something that you've only used for six months because you only needed it for six months and have a nice process for doing that cleanly and quickly without a whole lot of discussion and meetings and overhead so that you can just sort of flip the switch, get rid of that one, move on to the next one and keep going. One of the things that I've been saying to people too is this is where disaggregation and rebundling, so disaggregation Mm -hmm. and aggregation is the process of unbundling and rebundling of technology. We've seen that extensively. That comes out of evanescence, this idea that we need to use these products at a faster rate or buy them in different ways so we don't buy them one and done. So we've seen Mm -hmm. a lot of what I would generally think of as heritage IT companies, Cisco, IBM, HPE, Dell, and now sort of stuck where people don't want to pay high prices for on-prem infrastructure anymore because they know it's more consumable. Now they're looking to say, well, I'm not going to pay $30,000 for a server. I'm not going to pay $20,000 for a switch. What I want is something that I'm going to take on board for three years, right off to zero and replace it. Now, that's to some extent the vendors have defended that transition. Instead of going cheaper, they've gone to subscriptions and they've maintained. Which over the lifetime is actually more expensive, but you pay for the – it's like if you had to rent a car for every single day. If you're going to rent a car 20 years, you're going to spend more than if you just bought the damn thing. You know, if you just need it for a weekend, buying a car makes no sense. Well, it's the old fleet management thing. Like There was a time when companies used to buy all of their cars to provide their staff. So people's jobs came with a car, the companies would buy them, and then they worked out that but you know, renting them from a fleet management car gave them a certain amount of flexibility. If they needed to fire people quickly, they could return them. Like they, the hire car company could do better deals on managing the, hire, the the fleet, in theory, because they had more buying power or they more more specialties. So the same sort of thing is applying to IT in that sense, especially around the infrastructure, but also to development. Like look at how AI is coming into developers. Right. And we're seeing yeah, the, the, the big yeah the big the big comment is it's it's all happening just like we thought but way faster. I don't think it's going to be way faster. I think we're seeing well it has every- been to date. Mm. I mean to date, to the computer scientists I've talked to have said yes, this is exactly what we predicted, but we would have given it six months and it happened in six days or a week. Yeah, you know, because I, the, the rate of change is, is pretty fast. Not really. I, I take a different position. What we see, I see in new trends or new fashions, as I call them. They're just a fashion, right? AI is the latest fashion, and there'll be another one later on. That, that, um, that I can't disagree with. Actually, so, yeah, I don't want to get into the details, but we've actually sat down and said, here are some benchmarks to watch for, and they're happening faster than anticipated. So, But we see that with all technologies. When SD-WAN came around no, in 2014, but, but, it was going to change it. Ten years later, the penetration's only 10%. No, no. If in you look fact, at, SD-WAN is the antithesis of AI. But anyway. Yeah, but, but, on, but I mean, look at virtualization. Totally let's, say, let's talk about VMware. It arrived in... Exactly. What, 
that two thousand and four or something. Was, and, it was two thousand and four. Yeah. And at uh, two thousand and fourteen, we started to see ninety percent. It took yes. ten years, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're seeing very early. And, and yes, there's some rapid uptake, but it'll still be 10 years. It always feels like it's happening fast, but then it actually takes a long, longer than you expect. But I, th- I thought you had a point beyond AI, which, which had to do with the speed of technology changes and the impact on how to manage that. Because, um, you know, if... I think the main thing you know, is buy company... cheap and buy consumable. Yeah, right. Just literally well, say, the only thing that matters is cost because I need to... Well, no, I, will, I, hmm. I would not say that's the answer. I'd say the answer is... First, to figure out if you're more on the evanescent end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. If you are, then follow what Greg said. But the other piece I would stress is make sure you're all in alignment. Because if you've got one of those CFOs that still wants to depreciate things on a 10-year scale, even if you're at an evanescent company, you're going to be butting heads forever. So you need to literally sit down and have a conversation that says, listen, mm. we are an evanescent company. Use this scale. We're evanescent. It makes no sense to depreciate over this period of time. Let's talk about depreciating in three years instead of 10 years or three years instead of seven years. Mm. If in the highly unlikely event that we're going to have have something that we bought anyway as opposed to a subscription. So I think one thing is, that would really focus a business is going to them and saying all of your IT is consumable. Remember that well, when you rent, a, when you rent is, somebody again, else's computers in the cloud, that's no, there's no write down, right? It's consumable. Right. You could make if, the case to is, the accounting again. team and say, these are just consumable like laser printers. You buy a server to go in the data center at 20 grand, just write it off in one year. You don't need right. to. Yes. I, mean, I think that makes sense mm. if you're one of the evanescent companies. And that's that's the important thing because not all companies are the same. I don't see higher education changing. Perhaps higher education will become entirely evanescent over the next 20 years. It could be. I've predicted it in in other contexts but for now it's actually on the enduring side so you can't go into a higher ed environment and say write it off this year because they'll they'll explode or utility or companies like that mm-hmm. but but if you know if you if you start by saying where on the spectrum am i then you can tailor your message and for an evanescent company it's exactly that write it off in the here and now mm-hmm. anything under x gets written off immediately mm. oh and by way you know let's try to use subscription services wherever possible because we're not going to be in the position of using them for long enough yeah. to have the cost matter you know the whole idea of so- exactly. software as a service just avoids the whole exactly. write off but right? then you have to be an you have to be an organization that for whatever reason is allowed to use uh, opex instead of capex again mm-hmm. if you're an if you're a utility that's not the case you can't the, the regulations require you to buy stuff and you're stuck buying stuff and you're stuck writing it yeah. off at a at a much greater pace. So hmm. realize so so it all starts with knowing where you are in the spectrum. And the other thing I would add before we kind of wrap up is regardless of where your company at this exact moment is on the spectrum, think about working at a company that's at the other end just to get the experience. So you can see how things are done. If you're evanescent, try to learn how things are done in an enduring you know, generational kind of company and vice versa, Mm because you will be a richer thinker for that because the scientist Richard Feynman said his toolkit was just bigger than other scientists. So he could approach problems with a lot more tools. You're essentially doing that. Your toolkit is what's in your brain and your experience. And by expanding your experience, instead of just working in evanescent companies or just working in enduring companies, Mm -hmm. if you have both, you'll be much more valuable. Keep on mind when you're and your personal attitude to your work has to match up. If you think you're building right. something for a lifetime of use and the company thinks it's building it for three years and it's done, then exactly. you need to have that in mind. Like a lot of startups are literally looking to sell themselves within the shortest possible time frame. They may exactly. well be around for five years to get there, but 
your personal goals have to align with that. Your self-realization needs to match that. Yes. And that's why understanding is the first thing and then alignment is the second thing, because (laughs) honestly, you're just going to have a lot of fights if you're trying to build a generational system, you know, an enduring generational system for an evanescent company or vice versa. You're going to be screaming there, stamping your feet going, just get it freaking done. Mm. And they're going to be like, no, you don't understand. 20 years from now, what will the impact of the decision you're making? And by the way, Societies are like that, too. And what's interesting is some societies like the United States is on the evanescent end of the spectrum. China Mm -hmm. is on the enduring end of the spectrum. Um, What's interesting is there actually doesn't seem to be a huge difference in the ability to quickly uptake emerging technologies. In fact, China has been the source of disruptive technologies like gunpowder and pasta, (laughs) just to name two. (laughs) So the idea that an enduring generational kind of organization is necessarily stayed stupid and out of date is a dangerous thought. And I think it's important for all of us. Well, on that note, we have to wrap up for today. Thanks for listening to Heavy Strategy. You can find Jonah over at as her main day job, which is nemertes.com, N-E-M-E-R-T-E-S.com. And if you go on over to community.nemertes.com, you can sign up for free and interact with some of the best analysts from the firm. Yes, as well as each other. And in fact, you know, it's much more interesting to talk to the people who don't think they have the answers, but have the unanswered questions who hang out in our community as well. If you want to find me, I'm Greg Farrow. I'm still one of the last people left on Twitter, it feels like. It's very quiet over there these days, but I am continually posting content there. You can also uh, follow me on other Packet Pushers podcasts like the Network Break. The Packet Pushers actually has a network of seven podcasts. Stand by for a new podcast coming up in May called Heavy Wireless. If you're a Wi-Fi kind of person and you want to know more, Keith Parsons has joined us to start hosting that, which is going to be very exciting. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.